This morning we come to a passage that, if it is unfamiliar to you, might be quite surprising or even shocking. One would not expect such sinful behavior from a person that is described after a, a man after God's own heart. That's what the Word of God says concerning David, a man after God's own heart. So I submit to you the proper response to this passage before us is not to be surprised or shocked or to think about the scoundrel that David is, but rather to be humbled and sobered. Humbled because, but for the grace of God, there go I. Sobered, for our course is not yet finished. Our race is not fully won. No matter how fleet of foot we have been up to this point, we can still stumble and fall. We need to understand the depravity of our hearts and how susceptible we can become to sin. What do we need to understand from this passage? What's the great takeaway? We need to guard our hearts. None of us is above such sins. And if we think so, Pride goeth before a fall. In guarding our hearts, we need to be concerned about not only the great sins, but the little sins. The psalmist says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer the need to guard our hearts. There's so much in chapter 11 that I would love to take it in sections and spend a week on each part. However, I thought it necessary this morning that we view chapter 11 as a whole. It's important that we understand it as a unit. The events of chapter 11 form the links in one chain, an inseparable chain with each link connected to the one before it. We see the summary statement in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27, if you would look with me there. It reads, And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her, that is Bathsheba, to his house, she became his wife and she bore a son. And now these words, but the thing that David done displeased the Lord. And I would just point out to you that it says the thing that David had done. It doesn't say things, plural. It says the thing that David had done. And so we might ask ourselves, well, what is that thing? Is it David's committing adultery? Is it David arranging for the, the death, the, the murder of Uriah? What is the thing that David had done? And the answer is it's all of it. It's all of it. It's everything that's found in first chapter, chapter 11. It's viewed as one incident. It's viewed as a whole. It's viewed as everything taken together. It all. This pleased God. And so, for that very reason this morning, I want to see it as a unit. 
I want us to see the progressive nature of unrepentant sin. That if we don't repent, our lives get more and more hard, they get more and more sinful, and the actions we take become more and more egregious. It's very important that we break the chain of sin through repentance. Unrepentant sin leads to greater and greater sin and greater and greater consequence. In order to work our way through this passage this morning, I'm going to be dividing it up into four parts based on four relationships that David has. First are David's relationship to his troops. Second, David's relationship to Bathsheba. Third, David's relationship to Uriah. And then fourth, David's relationship to Joab. And we're going to see David's sin in each one of these relationships and how in his unrepentance, things just keep going worse and worse and worse. So we start off with David and his troops. I want us to see David's failure in fulfilling his kingly duties. If you look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting at verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Key phrase, but David remained at Jerusalem. So we must ask ourselves, was David in the wrong for not going to war along with his troops? And I would say yes, it certainly would seem so that David failed at this point. The text draws us to our attention to the fact that it was customary for kings to go out to battle with their troops. Look at verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. That's what kings do. Kings go out to battle. If you remember when Israel first wanted a king, all the way back in 1 Samuel, before even the time of Saul, when Samuel was judging the land of uh, Israel, they had wanted a king. And listen to what they had said about that king. 1 Samuel 8 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. That's what the primary job description was for David, according to the people that he would go out and fight their battles. That was the expectation of a king. And if we look at David's life in general, we find that it was customary for David to do that very thing. David usually led the troops in battle. If we go back to first, uh, excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 10, just the chapter previous to this, it says in verse 17, of 2 Samuel chapter 10, when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. So as early as 2 Samuel chapter 10, David is still leading the troops into battle. But even more significant is if you turn to chapter 12, we find that in regards to this very same war, that David is for the time being sitting out. If you look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 26, it says, Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites, and he took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. 
Now then, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called my, my, my name. So David gathered all the people together and rent up Rabbah and fought against it and took it. So David eventually goes to battle. This very same battle that right now he's sitting out. So there's no question that David should have been with his troops. But he was not. So application number one, why does that matter? Why is that important? It's a small thing that David doesn't go with his troops in a battle. And one might even wonder, isn't that just irrelevant? What does it matter that David didn't go to battle with the troops? They win the battle, don't they? They, they get the victory. Well, the answer is yes, they do. Yes, they do. So what seems like a mere shirking of one's duty is actually going to lead to a chain of increasingly more sinful and ultimately deadly events. Little sins, insignificant sins, when unrepented of, grow into greater and more significant sins. What is the relevance of telling us that everyone else went out to battle and David is remaining in Jerusalem? Answer, if David had been with his troops, none of what follows would have happened. Let me say that again. If David would have been where he should have been, if David would have been in his troops, if David would have been on the battlefield, none of the rest of chapter 11 would have ever taken place. But it does. But it does. Because David is where he doesn't belong. And it's going to lead him into greater temptation. Even Little things are extremely important. And we can find that in even just simply doing our duty, in fulfilling our responsibilities, in living each day according to the way in which God would have us to live it, is a means of protection for us. It's a way of our avoiding sin by simply fulfilling our responsibilities and duties and living before God, a clear conscience, fulfilling the responsibilities that are ours. But things are going to get much worse. So we look at David and Bathsheba. Matters get worse. David sees Bathsheba taking a bath, verse 2. It happened. It happened. What happened? Well, late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now, let's give David the benefit of the doubt, and suppose that he was quite innocent in this encounter with Bathsheba. I think that's reasonable to assume, that David is taking a nap, he gets up, walks on the housetop, looks over, and here is this woman taking a bath on the top of her house. What does David do? Sees this woman taking a bath. Very beautiful. What does David do? Look at verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman. 
David, at this point, fails to put it out of his mind. He fails to forget what he has seen, but rather he dwells upon it. He thinks about it. He actually is going to fantasize about it. Spurgeon once said, and I quote, you cannot keep a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep it from building a nest in your hair. Meaning that you can't govern every thought that comes into your mind. You see things and it creates a thought and and you can't just say, "I'm, I'm never going to have an evil thought. I'm never going to have a sinful thought. But Spurgeon says, but what you can do is keep the bird from building a nest in your hair. You don't have to dwell on it. You don't have to nurture it. You don't have to develop it. You don't have to give in to it. You don't have to develop a plan. What does David do? Verse 3. David sent and inquired about the woman. Uh, He wants to find out more about this beautiful woman that he has seen. Now, it's important as to what he finds out. What does he find out? Verse 3. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba? the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So notice what he finds out. First, he finds out her name, Bathsheba. Secondly, David finds out that she is the granddaughter of his most trusted advisor and counselor, Ahithophel. We're going to be introduced to Ahithophel in just a little bit. And Ahithophel is the man in Israel at this time. Wise, knows what is the right thing to do and is going to be advising others, counseling others in what is moral and what is right. Bathsheba is his granddaughter, according to 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 34. Next, he finds out that she's married, the wife of Uriah, the wife of Uriah. She's got a husband. And then lastly, what he finds out is, not only does she have a husband, But her husband is one of the most valiant and valued warriors in David's army, Uriah. Uriah is a known entity. Uriah is a hero. If you look at 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 39, I'm not going to turn there for the sake of time, but in 2 Samuel chapter 23, there's a list of David's mighty men. The, the outstanding people in David's army. And there are a list of 39 men. Uriah makes that list. Uriah makes that list. Which means that probably David knew Uriah, or at least knew of him. His reputation would have gone before him. Uriah was a hero. In short, what does David find out? Answer, Bathsheba's off limits. Bathsheba's off limits. David can't have any relationship to this woman. It's wrong. She's the granddaughter of his most trusted advisor, the one who teaches David about what is moral and what is right and what is good. She's married. And not only is she married, but she's married 
to one of the, the heroes, one of the greatest fighters in the army, who just happens to be away fighting for David now. David should have at that point stopped. He should have come to his senses, realized that this was wrong, he can't go any further. This woman is off limits. But unfortunately, that's not what David does. However, none of that information deters David from his sinful desire. It should have reinforced the sinfulness of what David is about to do, but it does not. Instead, the information emboldens David. David knows that Uriah is at the war. Bathsheba's husband is not around. This provides an opportunity for David in his mind. His actions are given to us quite clearly and succinctly. If you look at verse 4, so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Very abrupt, very curt, very matter-of-fact. Doesn't tell us what's going on in David's heart, doesn't tell what's going on in David's mind, doesn't talk about how he rationalizes, whatever. It points out his actions. It points out what he does. And there's a sequence to what he does. At each point, David could have repented. At each point, he could have stopped. The first thing is he, it says is he sent. He sent. He sent messengers in order to bring Bathsheba to him. The second is, it says that he took. So David sent messengers and he took her. There are 74 different Hebrew words, all translated into English as take. So it's very significant, the word that's used to be taken here. He took her. According to Wilson's Old Testament word studies, oftentimes it means to take away with violence to take possession, to seize, to capture, also to take by captive landishments, meaning to take captive either forcibly or to take captive as far as allurement, enticement. The emphasis is that this is David's doing, that Bathsheba is not cooperating in this. That, that Bathsheba is not entering into the, a relationship with David. This is all on David. This was all his doing. He sent, he took, and then thirdly, he laid with her. He laid with her. He had a sexual relationship with her. Again, he could have sent for her. He could have brought her to the palace. And once at the palace, he could have stopped and said, what am I doing here? This is wrong. I can't do this and send her home. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He never takes the off-ramp. His unrepentant sin keeps taking him deeper and deeper. And so he had a sexual relationship with him. The result is that Bathsheba becomes pregnant. Verse 5. And the woman conceived. And when she becomes pregnant, she informs David of that pregnancy, end of verse 5. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now there is absolutely no doubt that this is, is David's child. No question. Look at verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now these words, now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. 
That was the bath that she was taking. She was clarifying herself from her uncleanness. If you understand the Old Testament, if you understand the laws of purification, let me just say in a delicate way, you understand what this means for her menstrual cycle. She was not pregnant before David had a sexual relationship with her. There is no question, this is David's child. So matters get worse. What does David do? Knowing that this is his child, David is unrepentant. David continues down a sinful road, which brings us to David and Uriah, as matters get continually worse. David tries to hide his sin by planning to make it appear that Bathsheba is pregnant by her husband Uriah, verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. He wants Uriah back in Jerusalem. He wants him to sleep with his wife so that he thinks that this child is Uriah's child and not David's child. So David acts as though Uriah was summoned to give an update on the war, verse 7. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. David tells Uriah to go down to his house with the intent that David would, excuse me, with the intent that Uriah would have a sexual relationship with his wife, verse 8. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. See, however, David, uh, excuse me, Uriah did not go down to his house, verse 9, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So David questions Uriah, why did you not go down to your house? Why did you stay here? Answer, verse 10, when they told David Uriah did not come to his house, David said, Uriah, have you not come down to a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah answers it was his moral and ethical duty not to go down to his house and have sexual relationship with his wife. Verse 11, Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and his servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? He says it's morally inappropriate. What, for him to have a, a sexual relationship with his own wife? Yes. He says, I shouldn't be thinking of myself in my own interests. Now, let me just quickly give you a verse that helps shed some light on this. It was understood that when one was going to war, they were to practice self-denial and abstinence. We see this much earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Back when David was first fleeing from Saul, he comes to the priest, and he wants some food to eat. And here's the interaction between David and the priest. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us, as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So it was the practice. David said they're always abstinent. They never have sexual relationships when they're ready to go into a battle. 
We don't do that. So Uriah says, I can't go down and have a sexual relationship with my wife while Joab and all the troops are out there. That'd be wrong. And yet that's exactly what David did when all the troops are on the field. What's he doing? Having sexual relationship and with someone that's not his wife. I mean, it's a smack dab in your face of, again, a rebuke without even being an intentional rebuke. It's wrong. I can't do that. So what does David do? David seeks to corrupt Uriah. He seeks to corrupt Uriah. He seeks to get Uriah to go against his conscience. He seeks Uriah to do what is morally unethical. Verse 12, then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him to eat. If you look back in verse uh, previous, he said, I can't eat drank, he says, I can't drink, and so he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So even his best intentions of corrupting this man and getting him to go against his morals doesn't work. So he doesn't go down and have a sexual relationship with his wife. Verse 13, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so they made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So plan B is that David will arrange Uriah to be killed in battle. David writes a letter to Joab with instructions to arrange for Uriah's death. Verse 14, in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab. And David has no qualms or fears about Uriah carrying the letter. David knows that Uriah is an honorable man and will not read the letter. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And you get this? Uriah is carrying his own death sentence. David doesn't think twice about letting Uriah carry that letter. David understands this is a man of morality. This is a man of integrity. This is a man who can be trusted. Here, carry this. Sure, I'll carry it. I won't look at it. I won't read it. David has no qualms. What is striking in this passage is that Uriah's righteousness and faithfulness is not rewarded. Uriah does everything right in this passage. Uriah is godly. Godly is, Uriah is making moral decisions, ethical decisions. He's maintaining that righteousness, that holiness, that goodness. And David, rather than rewarding and commending Uriah's righteousness and goodness, actually uses his righteousness against him. Rather, it takes advantage of this good man and uses him as being the instrument for his own death. 
So now we're told the details of the letter, verse 15. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting. Then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. So put him out, put him in the front, and then everybody retreat. So he's left fighting the battle alone, and he's going to die at the hands of the Ammonites. So what's the application here? Righteousness is not always rewarded. Doing the right thing doesn't always turn out right for us. It's never promised. That's not why we do the right thing. We do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. David, in his sinfulness, does not promote righteousness but promotes sinfulness. All along the way, David is now incorporating more and more people into his sin, which is what happens when people are unrepentant. They're not concerned about the moral and well-being of others. They're not concerning about what effect their sin is having upon other people. But rather, they try to draw them into it. They, they try to get them to support it. They try to help them engage in their sinfulness. Matters get worse. David and Joab. Got to keep moving for the sake of time. David commands Joab to arrange Uriah's death. Verse 15, in the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, then draw back for him. And then he says clearly that he may be struck down and die. Just so Joab doesn't miss it. The whole intent here, Joab, is to get Uriah off the scene. I want Uriah dead. Do what it takes for him to die in battle. Joab does as instructed, and it results in not only Uriah's death, but other innocent soldiers as well. Verse 16, and as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there was valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. So there are a number of good men that are going to die in this battle. Joab anticipates that David will be angered when it is found out that these good men have died in battle. Verse 16. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting of the king, then if the king's anger arises... And if he says to you, why did you go near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? If David hears about the death of these men, he's going to get upset. How could you be such a terrible commander that you allow these men to die? If David asks that, verse 21, who killed Abimelech, the son of Jehoshabeth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thesbes. Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. If David gets upset hearing about all these innocent men dying with Joab, Joab says, well, tell him that Uriah is dead. 
That was the goal. That's what happened. So David hears the news. Verse 22, so the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent to tell him. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us, came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Now, Joab anticipates that David is going to be angry. David's going to be upset by the death of these men. But he's not. He's not. At this point, David is hard-hearted even towards his own troops. Now, this too is out of character for David. When we get to 2 Samuel chapter 23, which is into the future, there is an incident where David is out with his troops. He's without water. He's famished. And three of his mighty men go in order to secure water for David. They break enemy lines. They risk their lives. They bring him some water. They bring the water back. And if you know the story, David pours that water out on the ground. And he says, how can I drink this water when it was at the risk of the lives of these men? How could you risk your lives for me, David says. That person with that kind of heart right now because of the sinfulness and the hardness of his heart, could care less that his act caused the death of some of his soldiers. At least Uriah is dead. But David is more than hard-hearted. David is also brazen. Brazen. David's words to Joab. Well, let me just make an application here quickly. When we are involved in unrepentant sin, we do not care about the consequences that our sin has upon others. Sin is selfish by its very nature and does not think about the troops, Bathsheba, Uriah, or Joab. That's the unfortunate part about unrepentant sin. It has consequence for others that we don't care about. David's words to Joab. David seeks to relieve Joab of any sense of guilt, of wrongdoing. Look at verse 25. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. Do not let this matter displease you. Circle that word displease. In verse 25, if you make notes in your Bible, Circle it and draw an arrow down to verse 27. The end of the verse, it says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It's the same Hebrew word. It's defined moral fault. Moral fault. David says to Joab, don't think this is evil. <laughs> it was evil. It was wrong. But David says, don't think of this as wrong. Don't think of this as evil. This is not wrong. And then notice his justification at the end of verse 25. For the sword devours now one and now another. David says, who knows? Who 
knows? The randomness of life. The sword devours now one, now another. You know, yeah, Uriah died, but he, you know, he could have died in battle the next day. Who knows? Who knows? God is sovereign. Don't worry about it. It's okay. Well, it's not okay. It's not good. And again, it's David corrupting others into what is morally right and what is morally wrong. David wants to encourage Joab, the end of verse 25. Strengthen your attack against the city, overthrow it, and encourage him. In the meantime, Bathsheba grieves the death of her husband, verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. She, again, is an innocent bystander. She wasn't planning this death. She wasn't wanting this to happen. He could care less about what that meant for Bathsheba. He could care less what this meant for Joab, and he could care less what this meant about his troops. At this point, it's all about himself. That's what happens with unrepentant sin. It becomes all about ourselves and what we want. So what are we to think about all this? Well, verse 27 And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Takeaway is the end of verse 27, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Again, the word displeased means to view as evil. None None of what David did was good. None of what David did was right. None of what David did was free from evil and from wrongdoing from verse 1 to verse 27. It was not good. It was not just. It was not right in God's sight. Quite to the contrary. It was sinful. It was morally irrehensible. What's important for us to understand as we move forward is that God does not condone this action. You can't Throw this into the whole sovereignty of God regime and saying, well, ultimately this must serve God's purpose, therefore it must be good and right. No, you can't play those games. God is sovereign. God is going to bring good out of this, but God's position is this is morally evil. This is wrong. This should not have taken place. This is all on David. And David doesn't come out smelling like a rose. David comes smelling like a skunk. It's not right. But again, what should we take away from this? Well, first of all, unrepentant sin leads to greater and greater sinful deeds. What starts out as seemingly insignificant, David not going to battle with his troops, ends... Ends, and look at the irony here, in the death of his troops. The full circle. 
the full circle. David should have been out with his troops. And his indifference ultimately leads to the death of his troops. Even little sins, when they are not repented of, lead to greater and greater sinfulness and deeds. David failed miserably on a number of fronts. He failed in his commander as chief to be with his men and to protect them. He failed as a husband to his own wife. He failed as a human being showing compassion and love for his fellow human beings. There is none of that in this passage, which chapter 9 was filled of. David failed as a king. He failed as one who was to rule with equity and justice. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15, it said, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all the people. That's what characterized David's kingship in chapter 8. That David administered justice and equity to all the people. Chapter 11, there's no justice here at all. There's no equity here at all. There is no goodness here at all. David failed in his own walk with God. And David failed in his representation of God. He was to rule like God would rule, and he did not. But what's the great takeaway? David is not a hypocrite as I think of a hypocrite. Meaning that David was not a mere professor of faith. David was not pretending to be born again when he wasn't. David was truly born again. And not only was David truly born again, but David had a real sincere dedication to God. A real sincere dedication to God. For it says that he was a man after God's own heart. Born again, dedicated, sincere, and had a track record of administering equity and justice. David was a good guy. And this good guy did incredible evil. Adultery, death, Lying, deception, we go on and on and on and on. What are we to understand? Is David an outlier? Is David so different from other great heroes of the faith in the Bible? Hebrews chapter 11, go down the heroes of the faith. 
and see the sins. Not listed in Hebrews chapter 11. Their deeds are listed in Hebrews 11 of faith, but go back and you'll soon see their chinks in the armors of these heroes of faith. So are we just to dismiss this? Are we just to say, well, that's the way people are? Are we just to put it under the rug? What are we to do with this? And what I'm saying to you is, I think it should bring us up short. Especially if we get to the place of comfort that we think that we could never do this kind of thing. I could never commit adultery. I could never murder. I could never do these things. The heart is deceitful above all things desperately wicked. Don't play with sin. And don't play around with small sins. For small sins, unrepentant, lead to greater sins, which lead to greater sins, which lead to greater hardness, greater insensitivity, greater sinfulness. When we start down a road of sinfulness without repentance, that road can get awfully mucky, awfully filthy, awful dirty. We're going to see that David's going to come to repentance. It's going to take a year, but he's going to come to a place of repentance. But only all Don't you just wish that David would have repented earlier? Don't you just wish that he would have stopped? Stopped. Stopped when he heard that Bathsheba's husband is Uriah, knowing that he's out to the battle, knowing that That means sexual abstinence, and David's not at the battle. They should be convicted of that. And then the lack of sexual abstinence. Then when Uriah comes and reminds them of these things, unwittingly, repent. 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 Wherever we are in the spectrum of sin in our lives, May we stop now. Wherever we are in that spectrum. Maybe it's just the thought that comes into our mind like Spurgeon says, you can't keep a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep it from building a nest in your hair. When David walked out and saw Bathsheba taking a bath, there was the time to stop. But he dwelt, he, he nourished it. He sent and found out things. And then when he finds out about her, granddaughter of Ahithophel, married, married to one of his best soldiers, should have stopped, should have stopped. Brothers and sisters, there are so many red flags that God gives us in our life to tell us now is the time to stop our sin.
Now is the time to repent. If we fail to do so, it only gets worse and worse. Let's pray. Almighty God, I pray that you would give us a spirit of repentance. That you would help us to guard our own hearts. And may we not become complacent in our righteousness. For the psalmist says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Ask the question, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden truths. Lord, open our hearts and minds that we are convicted of our sin when presently we're not. If there are hidden things, if, if there are things that don't even come to our own mind as being wrong, bring them to our mind and give us a spirit of repentance. May we pray to keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Let them not rule my life. Keep me back from the small things that I be innocent of the great transgression. That I don't go so far in depth of sin. Lord, we, we pray the words of the psalmist. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord. May we, may what we think and what we say be appropriate. And if they are, if our hearts are right, we'll be preserved. So, Lord, reveal to us our hearts. And give us a longing, a thirsting after righteousness. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.